Hey everybody, welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robbie Wagner, and my co-host, Charles William Carpenter III, with our guest today, Daniel Rowe. How's it going, Daniel? Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for staying up late for us. It's nice. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's really a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh... Yeah, I guess before we jump into anything, if you want to give a, a brief intro into who you are and what you do. Goodness, a brief intro into who I am. Like, throw the existential questions at me straight off the bat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm an open source developer. I have a background in uh, the agency world as well as the startup world. And at the moment, I'm one of the core team of Nuxt, which is a framework for building web applications. It's built on top of Vue. And we're spending a lot of time on Nux3 at the moment, which has particular focus on serverless and hybrid rendering and, and lots of really interesting things like that that aren't just because it's built on Vue, but, but are powered by lots of new tech that we're building that is framework independent. And I'll really happily talk about any of that. But I'm um, based in the, the UK, in the northeast of England. I have uh, three cats, a dog, a two-and-a-half-year-old son. I live in the countryside on the banks of a river in an ancient forest with fields all around me. And I'm uh, about a mile and a half away from a city called Durham. Hmm. The famous English town of Durham. <laughs> Everybody's heard of Durham. Bill Bryson is a, I don't know if you've come across him, a travel writer. Mm-hmm. I love him personally. But he was, he's, I think, British, went to the US, came back to the UK. And uh, he's, he's written about lots of places. Check him out. I genuinely find him hilarious. But he, in one of his books, he said that Durham was the most perfect small city in the world, something like that. Hmm. And as a result, Durham said, we love you, Bill Bryson. <laughs> and they named him chancellor of the, univer- of the local university. But Durham University is, is a big deal. It's one of the, the top universities in the UK. And uh, even to this day, if I drive out uh, down, down the road, I'll pass the Bill Bryson Library, which is the the main university library, because you recognize Durham for the most perfect city, small city uh, in the world. So that's our claim to fame. That's one hell of an intro, really. Yeah, you live in the perfect yeah, city. Podcast is over. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how we can do any better. I, it's uh, we're gonna we're gonna drag the quality of content down from there on. I'm certain of it. So, uh, but before we, no, no, I I, I love, love taking um, American friends who visit around uh, Durham because uh, you, you see uh, beautiful buildings that are older than the establishment of the U.S. as a current nation state, which is which is interesting. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about uh, visiting England or just uh, lots of European cities is uh, they'll say, oh, this is a relatively newer town. It was established in the 17th century or something. And you're like, oh, older than my country. Yes, got it. <laughs> <laughs> We should start with some of this whiskey, though, before we get too serious. Yeah, I'm in a building that was built in 1800, so I'm a little bit closer, but still pretty new, I guess. Mm-hmm. But anyway, whiskey. <laughs> you were saying whiskey. All right, so today we are trying the Lafroig Lure. So the richest of the rich. Yeah, that's what that's what it said. It was like <laughs> you know a real upgrade on regular Lafroig. I guess. So 100% malted barley, as are many scotches. So it's 48% ABV, 
uh, age anywhere from seven to 21 years, which that's respectable. And then it is a complex blend of small batch scotch whiskey matured in five different casks. And I know one of those was like ex bourbon barrels, but that's pretty common for hmm. whiskey or scotch in general as well. So that's all the technical notes. Interesting. Ooh, there's the pop. Once you pop, you can't stop. That's what they say. Pringles? Yeah, Pringles. <laughs> well. Mm, that's a campfire. Kind of, it's def- <laughs> so, Daniel, do you prefer peaty or smoky scotches typically? Oh, gosh. I love smoky, honestly. Mm. And there's something as well. I, I don't know if you, you ever capture the whiskey for the following day. So after you've... Yeah, I'm guessing you probably do. Um, so after you, you've savored the whiskey, I'm just covering the, the top of it with something so nothing escapes. And the next morning you come and just drink in that aroma. It's amazing. And I think smoky whiskeys, particularly the next day, when you take that off, it's like there was a campfire. You know, there were there was something amazing. And to pull some of the, the sort of different notes out of it, then the following day is, is, is incredible. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. What about you guys? Well, I am a bourbon drinker primarily. So I guess some people would say I like a sweeter whiskey, but uh, we have been drinking a lot of rye. So a little bit of that like peppery kind of spice to it Mm. is a nice like punch in uh, and away from like, you know, the corn based whiskeys out of those two PD or smoky. I think I would also prefer a smokier Same. whiskey. Um, yeah, the PD ones kind of remind me, I'll, I'll say a lot of times it's kind of reminds me of like IPAs of whiskey, you know, where you get like that hoppy kind of bittery flavor. And I feel like a peated whiskey like is more like that for me. And that this whole like mossy kind of mildewy kind of thing. I don't know. It's like it's interesting, but then it feels very one note. While the smoky, you get like that smoke on it but then you still get like the various notes of the whiskey a little more i mean i completely agree but i'm a bit worried though that peaty whiskeys are going to be the thing of the past because for to save the planet i think there's going to be a lot of restriction imposed on the use of peat in the making of whiskey mm. so um mm. so i guess you'll be fine <laughs> yeah i don't think i'll be sad at all <laughs> in fact can we also, well, I guess you can't really do that with hops to get rid of uh, IPA beers, but for me, yeah. Sorry, this has got like a little, like I'm used to a little more burn and bitter on the finish, and I feel like I'm getting a little sweet on the finish. For me, that the sort of minerality of it, which I, I don't know that's exactly what you're saying, because there is a sweetness as well, but but something about it, it's not the, it doesn't have that burn. It has, it, there's much more of a, you're, you're detecting different notes of some interesting Minerals, I think. Yeah, minerality. That would be a word that I think I would use on it. Probably the water, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's definitely the water they use. Yes. All spirits producers think that theirs is the most unique due to their water source, mm-hmm. which could be. Yeah. I'm having a hard time picking specific flavors because it's just huge campfire, but it's so smoky. It's tasty. <laughs> it is very smoky, but I like smoked cocktails. I've had smoked cocktails and I think those are really interesting and they add like, like a light air of this smoky flavor to it too. I don't know if you've ever had one of those. It's one of my least successful gifts to my wife ever. Um, I got this little smoking gun, I think it was called, and you can put like shavings of oak 
in the base and uh, you press a trigger and smoke comes out the front and you've got a tube. You can put it into drinks. You can put it into sealed containers and put some cheese in or something and, and smoke it. And I'm sure that thing has only been used twice. Mm. But the concept of it, the concept is great, I think. And uh, <laughs> I should probably try it a bit more. Smoky cocktails sounds nice. Yeah, smoky cocktails. I feel like we might be up your alley. Well, let's get to the rating portion of our segment. So we rate them from one to eight tentacles. It's a pretty arbitrary uh, system, but we just kind of like one being I would never touch this again and I can't pick zero, you know, kind of thing. And eight being like, this is the most amazing whiskey. I never want to drink anything else. It's all very subjective and whatever else anyway. But Robbie will start it off and... (laughs) Okay. Give you an idea. We've had a lot of whiskeys, so we're kind of segmenting them based on types. So in the types of scotch or scotch style, like including Japanese and some things that are kind of similar, I would give this one a seven. I think uh, I typically am not a big scotch drinker, so I tend to not like them as much, but I actually really like this one. So I'm going to say seven. Yeah, I'm feeling like this one... uh hit it out of the park for me as well. I, um, the more I drink it, the less I'm focused on the smoke aspect and the more I'm picking up some of the other flavors in it. And I actually am picking up a small bit of peat now, but not anything like, Ooh, that's way too much. It's overwhelming. It's like, feels a little light to me, a little, little sweet, a little peat. Like you said, now you've influenced me with the minerality comment, like a little minerally. Yeah. Like even refreshing, like a mineral water can be. So I think I'm going to go seven as well in this category of things. I'm like, I would definitely have this some more. I'm going to give it a six. I was tempted to follow you you guys on the seven because I do love it. I'm also starting to pick up, a, I don't know if you agree, a bit of vanilla or something from the, the casks, probably the um, mm. just on the nose, not, uh, not on the, the palate. But I really like this because the mix, the fact it's not an age-specific whiskey, so it's just that promise of, who knows what it is that we've brought out. I think you can definitely pick out the sort of the legacy of some of those older whiskey blends that have made it into the, and I, I really, really like that. I think I would definitely have this, this Lefroig again. It would be the Lefroig I think I would go to, to try. But I, I mean, six is a solid compliment, not a negative at all. I, it's only out of eight, eight tentacles. How, how can I, how can I give anything? <laughs> yeah, I've only got uh only so many shots at it. And I'm imagining that you probably drink a lot more scotch or scotch style whiskeys than I do. So, you know, you could have a pretty diverse selection. I mean, I've tried a number of things, but not, you know, not a ton. And on this show, I think we've only had one other scotch and then a few couple of Japanese, something like that. I'm not sure where you've been because we've had at least four scotches. <laughs> but Well, I'm drinking these and then I forget about them. That's what happens. Yeah, fair. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So it's hard to say. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. Should we talk tech? Yeah. Serious things. Yeah, I guess so. So yeah, you talked a little bit about what Nuxt is in general. I'm trying to think of which order we want to go in these questions for. Let's just jump into Nuxt 3. So you talked a little bit about it's it's around the corner. You know, what are some of the new features coming? Um, how close are we to having it done? Just tell us about it. So we're in release Canada at the moment for Nuxt 3, which means that most of what I'm talking about is built and usable today. And there are people, and in fact, there are quite a lot of sites with Nux3 in production. But it will graduate to stable when we uh, feel the API is, is complete. We're not going to be changing things. I think that's the main thing that's going to take us to, to stable. It's not that we 
will never have any bugs in a stable version, but it's more that this is what we're committed to in terms of the stable release. So you, you can expect that any changes will follow Semver. You'll have a minor bump if there's a significant change. If there's a breaking change, it will be major. So that is what we want. We, we want to avoid, avoid breakage. So some of the things that Nux3 brings are, it's well, it's, it's been rewritten from the start. So it's given us an opportunity to do, I think, what we really wanted to do with Nuxt and to learn from some of the mistakes we made for Nuxt 2 and adapt Nuxt for a new world. <laughs> that sounds a bit crap. But <laughs> more and more, I think we're looking to take advantage of different kinds of hardware for rendering HTML. So we're thinking about rendering on edge networks rather than on a standalone server. So rather than have a, you know, a NUC server with maybe a couple of instances running somewhere, we're thinking of this, the server that we produce for NUX has to be able to start in a couple of milliseconds, render a page and then shut down because it might be on a serverless function and you can't have performance bottlenecks at the start, for example. So NUX 2 out of the box, it's like a bare minimum package. I did some checking on this. The cold start for the actual, for the server was 300 milliseconds. With Nux 3, it is three milliseconds. So obviously we've worked quite hard to make that possible. And we've also worked really hard to make it really small in terms of dependencies and the production server bundle. So in Nux 2, the production server bundle, minimal, so not any of the build dependencies, but only the production, was about 50 meg. In Nuxt 3, it's something like 500, 700 kilobytes, something like that. A lot of things we've sort of re- reimagined from that point of view, from a server point of view. In terms of user experience, um, and particularly on the front end piece, so obviously it's built in View 3. The move from view two to view three, there's a bit of a change in philosophy more broadly than just with Nuxt. So a move to extracting units of compute into composables. So this is a feature. It does stuff under the hood. I don't need to know about that. I just need to consume it in my app. And even if that's a, a feature you've built yourself, the idea that you you just expose the things that you you need to use, the API that you need to use, so a lot around uh, Nuxt has been around making that really possible. So we auto-import composables throughout the application. We expose them uh, and lots of other helper functions to TypeScript as auto as globally available. But then we have we work behind the scenes to import them just where they're needed in your code. And a lot of that kind of work has been powered by Vite, which is the new default bundler for Nuxt 3. There are actually two builds in Nux3. There's the, the build with Vite or Webpack, you can choose Webpack for the, the view part of your app. And then there's the, a separate um, roll-up build that turns the whole thing into a, a server um, if, if you're using that. And Vite provides lots and lots of c- capability to do transformations. So to inject code, auto-import components, remove whole sections of code that aren't being used, perform all kinds of interesting optimizations. We've really leaned heavily on that. I think the other main thing that I haven't mentioned so far is TypeScript. So we've tried to do some really cool things with TypeScript. So for example, if you have an API in your app that returns something like an object, we can then actually infer that for you. 
So when you're when you're using the fetch API in your app, it will be automatically typed as the the kind of thing that that endpoint returns, and lots of other kinds of things like that. So in Nuxt, so you can inject something in a in a plugin, for example, and then that will automatically be inferred and available throughout your app. So when you you access that injected property, it's the correct type. So things like that where you you really don't even have to think about TypeScript, which you know writing a module augmentation by hand is a bit bit scary and Anyway, we, we mean make it so you don't need to. I mean, it just just happens in the background. So there, there are lots of of really cool DX improvements powered by TypeScript. I could just keep on giving examples, but I mean that's a good sell right there. Like uh, simplifying TypeScript types and, and better inference there, rather than like trying to wedge things in and around and pick and omit and partials and blah blah blah. Yeah. Like make this thing here also be the thing that I'm expecting there instead of those two things clashing with each other. Yeah, that sounds really nice from a developer experience standpoint. I've been trying it. The big thing for me, as uh, you know, Chuck knows from the React side of the world, and I guess composables are a little different. You know, I'm not a huge fan of like hooks in React, and this is kind of the same kind of thing like with composables because I like magic and I like, you know, I can define this object with these properties and it like grabs my async data and stuff for me like automatically. It's not that it's any harder necessarily, it's just a, a switch of the, the mind. But that being said, I have been using it and I've been working on converting our website to use it and everything mostly works out of the box except for images because we're using the Nuxt image stuff and it doesn't support static images yet uh, or static sites I guess I mean all images are static but. except for the gifts that I add yes. as uh, Easter eggs <laughs> all over yeah <laughs> absolutely gifts are gifts are great things so I well I mean expect progress on next image pretty soon you heard it here folks <laughs> yeah now you're on the hook so I think today's August 23rd <laughs> just giving you a hard deadline. Well, it won't be when this airs. It'll air in a couple of weeks. So by then it'll be ready, right? Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> there is um, an edge version of Next Image. I don't know if you've, you've used it. Yeah, I think I'm using it. And it does work for some static providers. But I think you're looking for the, the static generate version with IPX right. that will generate the images just exactly. The key thing that we need, there are actually two PRs pending right now. We basically need to be able to render binary data, to pre-render binary data. We can render it, but and uh, those I think those should do it. So it should be pretty soon. We'll see see this coming through. There we go. That'll that'll take us over the edge, get us there. Yeah, but yeah, I guess um I tried Nux Bridge a little bit, but I couldn't do that because it didn't work with Nux content. So I didn't fully go down that path. But like for the person that's trying to convert to Nux three, can you talk a little bit about you know that process? Like, should you use Nux Bridge for a while and kind of do it a little bit piecemeal, or should you try to jump all in, or what's the best path forward? It's tricky. So um, I've migrated projects from Nux two to Nux three, and I've done it both ways. So I've moved to Bridge. Bridge is intended to make it easier. It's not intended to add an additional hurdle in moving to Nux three. So if you want, you can adopt Nux3 straight away. But Bridge can be a way for you to test and see what bits of your code might need to change or might need to be adapted. And it might give you a way of testing that without fully 
jumping ship because bridge has a number of parts to it. So you can flip the switches on and off. So you can start by installing bridge with all the switches flipped off and then just one by one, flip them on and see, has anything broken? Is there any issue here? It's a bit of a, it's a useful tool for figuring out what might need to change as you migrate to Nux 3. I think I would probably, I migrated one team to Nux Bridge over lunch. So we were doing a, a day of consulting. We took a break for lunch. I migrated that stuff to Bridge and put a PR up <laughs> and they were ready afterwards. So it can be quite quick. And migrating to Nux 3 is, can be fast also. In all my code bases, when I've done it, it's resulted in a net loss of line of code, line, lines of code, because again, everything can be auto-imported. If you've been using the composition API, then you can pretty much, uh, if it's pure view composition API, everything should work. You just remove the imports. Yeah, even between Nux 2 and Nux 3, there might be some differences when it comes to the behavior of stuff like watch between view 2 and view 3. And so there may be a couple of edge cases to look into. But generally speaking, I think you'll face some issues regarding modules, maybe. So there are some modules, depending on what you're using. So Nuxt Auth is slated to be released soon. I think likely either just before the stable release of Nuxt 3 or just after. But, uh, but there's no reason not to, not to move to Nuxt 3. Most I've, you can implement Auth quite quickly independently of, of the Nuxt module. But that, that will be mostly what people face. There's, they're using some dependency that's still in, in, in view two or Nuxt two. And, uh, that's what's going to hold them back rather than the, the framework. I think if you are wondering, check on Discord. I've heard the Nuxt Discord is a great place to ask. And I've heard stories that have really varied from people finding it. It took them a long time to people finding it was pretty instant. That leads me to think it's very dependent on the, the project. Yeah. I think it, it probably is mostly dependent on other modules, like especially if you're using some of the not kind of, you know, Nux.js slash whatever, like things that might not be 100%, what's the word, endorsed, I guess, by the the team would be potentially stuck because they don't update it as much or whatever. I think that's probably where you get into the most trouble. Or if you had your own modules that updating those would be important because otherwise it would not work. I do love writing modules as in, in a code base. It's one of my favorite things of, of building. I guess you experience it all the time when you build it, when you're writing code and you write it, you make it work and then you start abstracting it and making it simpler and um, making it reusable and ideally not too soon. Right. I you never, never go direct for the abstraction, always implement it. I, personally, I, I would say always implement it, always have it working, even if it's in a, a couple of lines in your node modules directory, or, you know, just hacking in and hard coding the whatever in the, the line it needs to be. And then when it's working and you're pretty sure it's, it's all good, you start abstracting and making it, making it beautiful and lovely. I know not everyone does it that way. Uh, but that's my my preferred way. And I, I, I love doing that as well for features. Um, so building in, okay, how do I make a sitemap work in my, my app? Okay, let's abstract that into a module. How do we embed this chat widget? Okay, well, what do we need to do to make that generic so I can use it anywhere? And that process is quite fun. So um, pretty much any project I would be working on would have a sort of list of internal local modules. And I guess you probably would be the same, uh, Robbie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends on, on the project, but, um, 
we used modules a lot for, and I, I don't know if this is valid in the new world as much or if there are other thoughts around it, but for like splitting an app into like basically each, maybe not each page, but like a page or two of the app, you know, logical sections so that a team could work on that module and add features to it and not mess with another module. And we had a common um, one as well for like, you know, common components and things, but. You are going to love the fitness feature of Nux 3 then. Have you looked at extends at all? I don't think so. It's a really common use case that somebody will want to be have a module that say regist- registers some components or some styles or some pages, some plugins. And then there might be another module that does the same, but for other bits of the app. Now you don't need to make a module. You can point to any directory that contains a partial Nux project or a full one. And in fact, multiple such directories, and they get merged into a final Nux project for you, which means you need to write no code. You just uh, create a directory, create a plugins directory, stick a couple of plugins in and point to that directory, say extends from this. It will be like those plugins were part of your project to start with. Um, and all the autocomplete works still as well, again, just like they were. And you can distribute that as an NPM package. And again, do exactly the same thing, point to it, which I think that might make life a little bit nicer as well. Oh, yeah. That simplifies a lot of things. Yeah. It's like a much simpler, like, um, yeah, micro front ends architecture, just extending from others. And then it sounds pretty nice that it like compiles into one project too. And that's all just smart happens behind the scenes and gets done for you. It's interesting. I wonder like, how does that work from a testing perspective though, too, right? Like, well, Nuxt is always interesting from a testing point of view. So component testing, the idea of testing is just an individual thing that you, you create, really only works if there is no framework. So it works at its simplest form. I'm not saying it only works, but in its simplest form, it works when you have no framework. So you're only using utilities from Vue, or you're only using libraries, which are pure Vue, and you can use Vue test utils and you can test it. But the moment you stick that into any kind of framework, particularly something like Nuxt, you're relying on things that Nuxt puts in place. If you're using data fetching utilities from Nuxt, well, they're not going to work on their own. They tie into a server and client lifecycle, and they depend on flags being set in the broader environment. So we're working with Nuxt to, to improve the testing experience and actually get rid of a lot of the things that people have been having to create over the years, like mocks that people basically construct bits of Nuxt um, in their tests in order to avoid having to depend on, on Nuxt. But that can be fragile. People can implement them slightly differently from the app and you can have edge cases. So um, with Nuxt, we, we've built a version of Nuxt test utils that lets you run a um, Nuxt project and lots of them in your tests. Now, it fires up the Nuxt server, provides the context. It can return the HTML to you so you can make assertions about it. And it can actually do browser testing as well on top of it. So you can make assertions about that. And all of that without necessarily opening up a port on your machine. So it's just done in code. That's quite useful. What's coming, so Anthony Fu has created a great little PR, and I have one as well, which is related. What's coming is the concept of rendering components on the server. So we can actually say in a testing environment, render me this component with these props. And it returns just that component with those props rendered. And that that can then be hydrated directly in the test runner. So it's end-to-end in a sense in that 
there as a server, but it's also component in that it's just testing this component. It's not testing everything around it. It's not a, and then you can perform all the normal kinds of things that you would want to do in terms of just what happens with this individual component and stuff that I do. So that is, is coming very soon. There's an open PR and you can expect as soon as, so it orchestrating the order of the PRs is part is a difficult task. And uh, Puya, who's uh, also who's the head of the framework, he it's his job to orchestrate them. It's a tricky, tricky one. Yeah. But we have a pending PR at the moment, which is for island rendering. So the idea that you can render individual components, but only on a server mm-hmm. at the moment. And we'll have client islands as well. And those can then be reactive, um, work part of the rest of your app, but they always get rendered on the server. So there, there's that island uh, renderer is probably coming in first and then adapting that. So it works with this idea of testing individual components uh, in dev mode. Because obviously in production, you don't want someone just saying, hey, render this individual component. Right. You have to be very much more specific <laughs> about it. But yes, it, it, that, that will be a very interesting thing when those two PRs that. Yeah. I mean, so abstracting away from the ideology of unit testing and of testing like Jest style component render testing, but instead actually like you can, it's closer to integration testing wherein your app can completely be fired up for you to like maybe test flows and you can boil that down one level to the component itself, but it's still the real thing. And the context is how a user would interact with it rather than did you render? What were your props? What are the underlying things? Oftentimes tend to be less important in terms of like protecting critical paths of your, of your application. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And then the island thing just made me think Astro. <laughs> I don't know. They, they haven't trademarked that, right? But, you know. No, it's, it's a generic term, I believe. Mm-hmm. There's lots of really interesting stuff coming out around this idea, which I think we could, I mean, I can certainly get behind the idea of, despite the fact that obviously Nux is a JavaScript framework, the aim is as little JavaScript as possible. Absolutely. And that is consistent with a good user experience, I think. You can have zero JavaScript and, and have a worse user experience because clicking to go from one page to another is not as smooth. Or because with the JavaScript framework, you can prefetch things in the background. And lots and lots of other reasons too, right? <laughs> I'll happily get into this, but I've seen some really, really bad takes on Twitter about this. But yes, you want, we want to, to make it as optimal as possible, reduce JavaScript. And it's not, also, not only about that. It's also sometimes about security. Some things do, you don't want to be rendered on the, the client side. You don't want to expose API keys, but you do need to make live API requests. In some cases, it's about performance mixed, like rendering markdown and highlighting it and stuff. Do you really want to have a markdown renderer in the browser? Do you really want to have an entire library of, of code highlighting again in the browser? feels like that could be better done on the server. But interestingly, the concept of Nuxt islands that we have, that we're working with at the moment is almost the opposite of Astro islands. They're islands of server rent. They're islands of deferring to the server. Whereas with Astro, the concept is almost the opposite. Um, they're islands of, of client interactivity. But we're definitely exploring similar kinds of things, right? maybe coming at it from different directions. And and so are lots of other frameworks. So I think it's a very interesting space to be in. And, you know, we all learn from each other. It's great. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that uh, that's a positive to be taken from all of the newer or not even always newer, but, you know, popularizing additional options. And then 
sharing some of those concepts, you know, like uh, obviously by the name Nuxt, Next had some influence early days. You know, we have uh, Remix now and Astro and Solid, even though that's been around for a while, it feels like it's building a lot of momentum. It's a lot of different takes on addressing various problems. But some of these frameworks will say, oh, Redwood JS, I got to say that. I think uh, Tom Preston Warner. Anyway, got to say his name every every episode. Now. Every episode. Yeah, exactly. Just to see if he's paying attention. So, yeah, all of these different frameworks and their intentions of solving some similar and some different problems. There's some positioning too, like, oh, our framework is really great for startups or really great for uh, having a server rendered really fast static content site, that kind of thing. So I'm wondering, uh, Daniel, do you think that, and it might change because based on how many things have changed within Nux now coming into N3, but is there like a target for the kinds of apps that you think Nuxt is best suited for and Nuxt 3 specifically? That's an interesting question. I think I would never want to say that something is best for in all use cases. And you always have to weigh up a project and figure out what it's meant for. But we are as much as possible try, trying to make Nuxt work for a pretty wide range of use cases. So with Nuxt 2, you, I think the targets that you would be aiming for were maybe the top level targets would be, you could have a static site and you there were two kinds of static. You could have a, a static site that is a static site that is just rendered in advance, but all the API calls are live. And you could have a static site that was a full static site, which is rendered in advance. And then also all of those API calls are rendered down to JavaScript payloads. You could have a full server rendered site and you could have a, a client-side app. And I guess mostly, and Nuxt was usable right across the, um, from enterprise right down to hobby bloggers or people who just wanted to get something up. Nuxt 3 is has a, a focus on hybrid. So the point of that is that you can do, you can be very granular if you want to be. You can say, I want to pre-render these pages. These pages, I want to statically pull out the payloads so that you don't have to refetch on demand. These pages, I want to be client-side only. These pages, I, I want to have core headers for. So it, it can be very, and you can you can create these root rules either on individual paths, but also as a whole. We already have caching rules applied that basically mean you can have virtually out of the box, just enabling a flag. You can have amazing performance with a fully server-side rendered app. And that's even if you have costly API calls, because we can use something like a stale with revalidate strategy for it. That kind of granularity means I don't really feel there's a red line where you think actually Nux can't serve this audience. Nux has always been workable for, for enterprises, but I think a lot of the features we've been working on increase that, particularly um, e-commerce sites that are that are needing to really benefit from that kind of server rendered. It has to be server rendered, it has to be personalized, it has to be very much, but also it has to be really, really fast. And it can't be some server somewhere else. It has to be to take best advantage of some of the the, the networks that are out there um, at the moment. But I mean, the idea is also it's it's really accessible and easy to get started with. And I think a lot of the auto imports and the TypeScript stuff 
it's hopefully makes it even easier for someone to get started with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can see like the, the DX improvements make it very approachable for someone who is familiar already with you and Nuxt maybe in general and, and say like, well, this is the tool that I've got. I'm just making a content site, but it's very simple. Mm. And this tool is also simple and, and then just improving the process for me. But then being able to to have a diverse set of options and performance-based things and, and so on and so forth for, I think I kind of nailed you on a vertical a little bit, enterprise e-commerce sites like, oh, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great framework to choose for those things because we're solving ABC problems that you might be seeing now. And an upgrade is great because we've made it even more robust for you. So we improved your DX and we're improving the performance of the application side too especially when you were talking about like the serverless application side of things where you might need to fire up a server to quickly render a page for cash moving forward while well, you're paying to play there. So if you've made it cheaper for my organization to use this and there's, I mean, there's an impetus for moving up right there and there's an impetus for exploring the framework from somewhere else as well too. If, if, if it's a, a cost control change, then why not? I think another um, interesting thing, which I have not mentioned so far, is that the Nux server is meant to be cross-platform in terms of where it can be hosted. So it can be obviously hosted in a purely static environment. So that goes without saying if you have a, a statically rendered site. But if you have any kind of server components, even if you're saying we statically render all the HTML in advance, but we also deploy an API alongside it, or you're saying we, we render some pages or whatever combination it is, we can deploy to Versal and Netlify both to their normal platforms, but also the edge rendering ones. We can deploy to Cloudflare. We can deploy to DigitalOcean App Service and um, AWS and anywhere, basically. And the aim is that it should work. You should not be locked in. You should be able to use all the features that Nuxt offers anywhere, which I think is a big, I mean, I hope it's a big reason to adopt it because you can use a platform without being locked in. Obviously, you want to take advantage of the platform you're on, but um, I think that's also a plus. Yeah, it's nice to have options that are not Vercel all the time. Nothing wrong with them, but uh, you know they're kind of the big player that has sponsored everything and tried to get everyone over to their side. And that's fine because they're a good product, but you never know what the future might hold. So not being locked in is, is super nice. I love Versal, nothing, nothing against Versal at all, but, yeah. but absolutely, you, d you don't want to be locked in anywhere. I mean, I think in general, I think I always like working with personally using suppliers that win me over because they have the best of whatever it is. They, they're able to meet my needs that um, it feels great. It's magical, whether that's experience or price point or whatever it is, but they've won me over. I don't have to stay with them. I don't, I'm not forced or coerced into it. I didn't make an early choice and now I'm reaping the, the whirlwind and, and having to, to, to pay the price for it. I'm with them because I want to be. I think that's the best scenario, right? You have the power to choose, but you're choosing the, the platform you feel is the best. And I can't think of any platform that shouldn't want that, right? I can't think of any platform that wouldn't want that, that free choice. Yeah, I'm not sure AWS wants that. I don't know if you've been on their uh, <laughs> dashboard anytime recently, but it's just like everything is really hard to do. To get information is hard to do when you have an, an issue and an error. That's what they want, though. 
They want it to be hard so that they can charge you lots of money without you knowing. It's secret. Well, that's what it is. Yeah, it's hard and there's an error and you're still triggering a charge and you didn't realize because you didn't spin down the right stuff or yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Had that happen once or twice. It's so difficult, actually, the the console and, you know, the sort of different regions as well. You think you know where you're going on and then you realize actually there was another region because when I clicked to sign up the provisioning for that domain, it actually needed to be in a different region and it's produced VPCs and stuff over there as well. And um, yes, I've I've done some of those rabbit holes too. Yeah. Yeah. I still can't even sign up because my account got banned forever ago because I got charged a lot of money and was just like, nah, not going to pay that. So... How much? <laughs> I want to know how much at this point. Well, no, and this was before I was doing like, you know, big client work. This was like hobby projects, like out of school kind of thing. And it was, it's like a thousand or two, I think, but it was like, you know, way more than I had at the time. And I was like, I'm not paying this. I'm just going to stop. <laughs> yeah. Based on a mistake because they have a complicated interface, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why when you have like Vercel built on top of AWS as like, you know, sugar mm-hmm. to give you a nicer interface and, and keep you like within guardrails, then, oh, okay, that now it's worth paying for because now I don't make that mistake. It's cheaper in the end. Yeah. I think there's definitely something to think there also in terms of how um, incentive structures within Amazon have created this. Because, I mean, when you have individual teams who are motivated and who have ownership of individual pieces you don't necessarily have a the incentive of that single vision that's going to make things integrated and easy to use from that point of view. Instead, you have competing projects which have every incentive to make their individual offering better, but not necessarily the, the sort of big picture. I say this with very little knowledge of how AWS works on internally, but, but I, I think that that is how it, it goes. Whereas Versal is is the opposite, right? It's absolutely top-down, single vision. I mean, even the logo is a triangle. <laughs> and I would totally read it. I, I can't, but I mean, you know, it, it is. It's that simplicity. How do we have a single vision and then implement it? Yeah, there you go. That's like basically how every startup should work. It doesn't always play out that way, but yeah. any startup, a single vision and implement it. Yeah. Robbie and I don't even have a single vision, so I don't know. No. Well, now we do. We're going to be a Vercel competitor and make ours a square. Oh. Simple. (laughs) (laughs) The next dimension. Mm -hmm. I see it now. (laughs) Uh, Octagon, that's it. Or I'm out. Oh, octagon. Like octopus. Eight and Mm -hmm. eight. There we go. Exactly. (laughs) It's a natural move forward. We've trademarked the uh, octopus, and so we actually have an ongoing, some ongoing litigation with uh, GitHub. We don't. See, I think I feel like we got a chance. No. There's this octo cat anyway. <laughs> right. It's not an octopus. It's mixed. Yeah. Ours is technically not either, but we won't talk about that controversy. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into some whatnot. Mm. I don't know. Do you guys want to revisit some of the things you're talking about before we started recording? Or do you want to jump into some of these bullet points here? Well, like about beautiful uh, Durham. North Carolina? Well, not North Carolina. It's the same, right? Isn't Durham, North Carolina is not, not the same. No, I thought by his accent, <laughs> clearly he's from North Carolina, but I guess I got that wrong. Well, I will ask the question because I always ask British people and I'm usually disappointed with the answer, but do you watch follow football, proper football? Well, first, I just want to correct you on something. Okay. Actually, I am American. Okay. 
I was, in fact, born in Alabama. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, see, I got the accent. Would right. not have guessed. North Carolina is not entirely wrong. <laughs> not entirely. I'm far off. All things can. You are from the South. Uh, so. Absolutely. I mean, I am also British, but um, but yes. So, and do I follow football properly? No, I don't. I follow it when it's the World Cup. Mm. And of course, I love watching a game of football. That's fun. But I'm not. Yeah, not like an avid fan. Gotcha. No. Nope. You're not Sunderland till you die. I'm not Sunderland until I die. Die, absolutely not. And um, I do have, I have a, f- a friend um, who is an avid fan of Manchester United. So we've started watching. <laughs> That's Eric Cantona right here. So how can you tell from from the little rendering there, like who it is? Because I I know it's like a still from a famous game and like oh, 97, gotcha. I think. Okay. So uh, and he's the king. Eric is the king. But um that's his nickname and they sing the 12 days of Cantonal at Old Trafford. But uh, I, uh, I digress here for a moment. Uh, so you've been watching. Did you watch yesterday? I did not because my friend is traveling and wasn't around. So that shows you how uncommitted I am to the, uh, the concept. It's still open for you. You could, uh, I always say, if you haven't been to the stadium yet, you could really end up supporting anyone. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I might be chatting in a few weeks time and I won't be able to, to stop talking about it. So. I don't know. I'll be, I'll be pleasantly surprised. So I've got to bring anyone I can on board. Us Yanks, which you are, you know, you're a rare Yank who even just watches it all. Absolutely. <laughs> so some of the things you had, had mentioned uh, that I might be more interested in, mm. you talked about uh, you had a holiday in Portugal uh, sometime recently. Tell us about that. So basically... A lot of things have changed um, in my life with having a uh, two-year, two-and-a-half-year-old. And also before he was two-and-a-half, things changed as well. But definitely holidays make a, um, they're a little bit of a different thing. We, we actually spent some time going to a conference. I was at VJS Amsterdam uh, whilst also staying with a family in Holland. Only problem is we came back and my wife was more exhausted than before we went on holiday, <laughs> owing to the fact that I was absent a fair amount of the time uh, for the conference. And the fact that holiday isn't necessarily stressless. So we, we took the decision to go a couple of weeks later for a proper holiday in, in Portugal. So we went to the South Coast. It was lovely. At a time when the rest of Europe was boiling up, the Algarve was wonderful temperature-wise. The, the wind from the sea brings it right down. So it was probably high 20s, early 30s degrees centigrade, yep. which was very pleasant. So uh, it was just just nice. And we were at a place where my little son could run around at a great speed, even managed to get, um, I think it was there that I wrote the server components PR and I'm not sure if it was the full static implementation as well, but it was definitely conducive to, to good work, both for coding and also um, for writing is that what my wife does so it was a it was a great great time uh, and it was holiday but we we tacked on an extra week because it was so nice a week of work but just in in a great environment and a little taste of nomad life i guess not uh, you know a week yeah but it was totally worth it you see why why portugal is drawing in the digital nomads yeah it's very popular right now yeah they have the digital nomad visa so them in germany currently and i know some other places are 
starting to do it more uh, along Eastern Europe and Italy is supposed to at some point too. Yeah, it's also cheaper than some other places because I know I've seen a lot of people, someone posted on Twitter. I don't know if it was anyone that anyone else would know or just someone random, but they were like, yeah, my, uh, my gas bill and like, I don't know, certain things for like the next three months are like the cost of just living in Portugal entirely for those three months. So I'm going to do that and just like left and did that. Right. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've always heard good things. It's such an indictment though, isn't it? I mean, great do that. You know, if, if, um, saves energy, I guess, which is good for all of us and gets you the chance to live in Portugal, then mm-hmm. why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. yeah. How was the food? The food was lovely. Let's see. It was near the sea, so there were obviously interesting fishy, crustacean type things to have. <laughs> I particularly like this dish. What do they call it? Something like black pork. Is it black pork? Does that ring any bells at all? It doesn't. Basically, it was like it had the taste of bacon-ish. So it was. It had this sort of very, very rich, very probably fatty, very creamy, mm. and utterly Moorish cut of pork. And it was on the sort of risotto with uh, sort of green vegetables and things. So I felt terribly like it was, I didn't feel too bad about myself. That was amazing. And the waiter even tried to dissuade me from it. He was like, well, not everyone likes this, but it was delicious. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to have to look up that recipe. I can't say that I've had any Portuguese food that I can think of. I, I mean, I've been to Brazil. Maybe they have some flavor of it. And I've been to Spain. There's some crossover. Yeah, yeah. Which I found Spanish food kind of bland. Sorry, it's a beautiful country, and but I found like like they don't like a lot of se- like very much seasoning. And I, I was saying to you earlier, I like the uh, British food. Mm. I like hearty things like you know the bangers and mash, good bubble and squeak, good. The Indian food's obviously amazing. I like yeah, I liked everything there. In Spain, I don't know what it was. I just well, they put wet tuna on pizza. I just I don't know. I don't know what they know about food. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. That that does not sound. Well, they always give you a salad <laughs> with meals, and then on the, in the salad there'll be like a scoop of wet tuna, and it's just a can of tuna that just didn't drain, and they scoop it. And, you know, I don't know. Mm. So I'm glad to hear that Portugal has got a better better grasp of delicious culinary options, and I like port. Why not? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Some nice dessert wines as well, even even the not port ones. And I think my favorite dessert wine in the world is it's from Hungary though. I think mm. I'm I'm a big fan of of the sort of Tokai grape and particularly the dessert wines made from it. Asu is lovely. Hmm. Not had it. We could really go off script and try uh what is it, uh wine web and whatnot. Absolutely. Some episode or still W's. Yep. Yeah. Still works. <laughs> I can get out a bottle tonight. I'll tell you the only, only issues, obviously I could describe it to you and you, you'd have to sort of appreciate it. Yeah. We won't be sharing in the experience. We'll have to do a follow-up episode with that. We can do like a special edition follow-up episode. Just all dessert wines. Yeah. <laughs> all dessert, plural. All. That's a very, very big offer. <laughs> yes. yeah. That's right. Turns out. Uh, so we tend to do these because I'm on the West Coast in Arizona. So West Coast time. So we tend to do these a lot of times at uh, two. My time today is a special bumping it up even one. So I'm having, you know, some lunch whiskey. I can't imagine if I just had multiple bottles of wine. <laughs> Oops. Turns out. 
I'm good. Yeah, your day would be over. Yeah, it'd be over. I need a cot here under this desk and then. Yeah. <laughs> good afternoon now. And uh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Then back at it. Yeah. All right. We're about at time here. Before we end, is there anything we missed about Nux? Anything you would like to plug that doesn't even have to be Nux related or projects you're working on? I don't know. Anything you want to say that we didn't get to? So um, it's just a bit of fun. But uh, I had COVID uh, about a, m- a month and a half ago. And basically, I was sitting around thinking, there's no, you know, even though I, I love working on, on Nux, any and all hours, I thought I'm going to do something different. I've got COVID. I'm ill. I just want to do something. So I, I, I wrote this little library called Magic Regexp. And it lets you write regexps in um, human readable format. So you can say something like, Ooh. create regexp exactly and any of row, carpenter, whatever. But you can write it. It's sort of natural language. And it compiles down to a pure regexp. So there is no performance hit in your project. And it provides you with type-safe access to that regex. Hmm. So you get access to named groups, for example. The response from a dot .match is typed fully. Ooh. We have an incoming PR which ha- has type-safe access to anonymous groups. So even like 0, 1, 2, 3 is type-safe. You can't access something that isn't produced by the regex. And you can even see in a hover when you're accessing that individual element of the match, which bit of the regex it's coming from. When you hover over the create regex core, not only have we built or have I built the regex builder in, in code, but I've also built it in TypeScript. So you can see in the hover what the generated regex looks like. So anyway, it was a fun um, challenge. Check it out. It's uh, regexp.dev is the website. Oh man, I would definitely use that. I hate writing regex. Yeah, I'm terrible at it. Like, I can do start and end is about all I know in regex. Like, it's going to start with this and end with that. And the rest, I used to use a thing called, like, regexer, I think, or something like that. But mm-hmm. it sounds much easier. Yeah. So, yeah, check it out. I should say another guy as well has, has joined me on the project. And he's been doing some really, really cool stuff. A guy called David Tai. But, yeah, check it out. Some really fun things. Awesome. Nice. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe and we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.